This week at Hope Point. Everything that is needed for you to get to heaven is done. Christ produced more hope at the cross than he did anywhere else. The cross reminds us that evil has no chance of defeating the plans of God. The cross reminds us that even when God leads us through unbearable pain, on the other side is immeasurable beauty. As a follower of Christ, we know that the suffering, trials, and hardships we encounter on this earth are only temporary. We are also assured throughout the scriptures that there is a purpose for these dark times, and this is our hope. Because Jesus suffered and conquered death, more joy than we can imagine awaits us on the other side of death. He has paid the price for our sin. The work is finished. All we have to do is believe. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. One of the reasons that I do love Easter, no doubt my favorite holiday, is because of the validation that it provides for one of Jesus' most radical statements in his teaching, especially in the Gospel of John. Just a few days before he was unjustly arrested and condemned to die, he not only predicted his death, but he said, my death will have the most powerful effect of any event in the history of the world, John 12, 32. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was gonna die. For most churches, 25% of all the guests that they will receive in a 52-week year will come at Easter. It is amazing that in this world that seems to become increasingly cynical toward the things of God, Easter has been set aside where people want to hear once again that there is a God who forgives sin and there is a God who ultimately wins over evil. And they come on Easter to celebrate those realities. In 2004, Jim Caviezel starred in a movie called The Passion of the Christ, and it's amazing of what it did at the box office. Worldwide, it, it earned $622 million, and yet the movie focused on the final 12 hours of Jesus' life, the most horrible moments of his life, suffering that is so difficult to read about in the Bible, difficult to watch on the movie, and yet this movie, which was so violent because it depicted what actually happened to our Lord, received an R rating, yet became the largest producing R-rated movie ever up till that time. It's amazing that there is a drawing of people's interest to God because of the cross of Christ. My uncle and I didn't see eye to eye on many things spiritually, wasn't impressed with many things I shared with him, and he wasn't impressed with many of the stories in the Bible, but when he went to see the Passion of the Christ, he told me, I never knew how much he suffered. Jesus said his cross would do that to people. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to, my, to myself. When Jesus spoke these words, he was definitely at the end of his ministry. He had just entered Jerusalem, the triumphant entry on the donkey, people waving palm branches, some of them laying them on the ground. Hail to the king, and everybody praised him. 
And little did they know that Jesus was not going to accept their praise as king until he did something first, that he was going to allow himself to be walk into a trap set by one of his disciples, arrested and condemned to die on a cross in order that he might bring billions of people to heaven by atoning for their sins. Those crowds that praised him turned on him, disappointed in him, horrified by his decision. They were angry. And yet Jesus Christ said, what I do on the cross is going to change the world. This statement in John 12, 32, it's interesting because it's another radical statement that Jesus makes in the book of John. He'd already made three of them. John 6, 35, he said, I am the bread of life. I can satisfy the spiritual hunger of everybody in the world. Amazing statement. John 8, 12, he says, I'm the light of the world. No matter how dark you have gotten in your life, Jesus said, I can bring you out of that into light. John eleven twenty five. 25, I'm the resurrection, the life. He said, bring me before anybody who believes in me and who has died, no matter how long they have died, I can raise them from the grave. And then, here in John 12, 32, he said, all of the attention of the world I will seek and I will place it on me because that's how I can help people the best. Amazing statement. If any other man would have made a claim like that, exalting himself, we would have said that he's disgustingly arrogant or dangerously insane. Yet when Jesus makes this statement with unabashed confidence, we're comforted by it. And we say, he of all people, of all men, has the right to make it because he's more than a man. And the way that we know that he's more than a man is what happened after his death as a man. The hope of Jesus after his death began to spread like wildfire. Thousands of people every day are still confessing Jesus Christ as Lord from every nation and city in the world. You know, we look at great men in history and we marvel at the things they have done. We marvel at Thomas Edison inventing the light bulb. But he never said, I am the light of the world. We marvel at somebody like uh, George Washington Carver who came up with the idea of rotating crops on the land. But he never said, I'm the bread of life. And we marvel at Alexander Fleming for discovering penicillin. But he never looked at anybody who had died of an infection and said, I can raise them from the dead. No human being, no matter how great their educational, political, uh, industrial, athletic uh, accomplishments. Nobody can stand alongside Jesus Christ and say, I should be lifted up above all people because I alone have the answer for the ultimate needs of humanity. It's quite a statement. Think about if anybody else in history ever made a statement like that, we would think they're insane, and nobody has. Even the great religious leaders of the world didn't say that. Muhammad, the leader of Islam, wrote a book that you know as the Quran, and then wrote six more volumes of religious teaching about Islam that's found in the Hadith. Had many, many things to say about Allah, but not one time in those writings did he say, I am the answer for the world. 
If you think about Buddha, his entire teaching was built upon this vision he had while he was sitting under a fig tree where he claims that he had this enlightenment of eight revealed principles that'll change your life. And he spent the rest of his life teaching those eight principles. But never did he say, I and I alone should be lifted up and I can change the world. Confucius, beloved by many people and millions of adherents in China, but never did he himself say that I and my own person have any power to change life. If he did anything, he pointed to ancestry worship and say they can help you, but not me. If any religious leader would have ever said they were the ultimate answer for the need of the human heart, we would find them laughable and detestable. But Jesus, when he says it, we find it marvelous and we find it to be comforting. Not even the greatest followers of Christ himself, even the people that you read about, and they seem that they got it right. They gave their whole life to that. Even they themselves cannot say, I have the answer for, I figured it out. The Apostle Paul cannot say that. He said, I'm the least of these, the worst of all sinners. Not Augustine, not Luther, not Calvin, Zwingli, not Moody, not Graham. No man that's been a devoted follower of Christ would dare say, look at me. I can solve the world's needs. And yet this is exactly what Jesus Christ is saying. I should be lifted up and let all the world look at me and all the world will be well. But he didn't just say I'll be lifted up. He specifically said there's a way that he's going to be lifted up. He'll be lifted up on the cross by way of death. He clarified that in verse 33 to show the kind of death, the kind of lifting up. It's going to be the lifting up on, on the cross. What Jesus Christ is saying in this amazing two verses in the book of John is he's saying, I will have more influence in life because I died than had I not died. The one thing that halts the influence of everybody in this room is death. Men fear it because they fear the loss of influence. There's something right about Jesus' confidence that would be absurd if anybody else said it. Men simply, and women, simply do not boast about their death. Nobody who's dying says, hey, you guys just hang on because when I die, then you'll see all of my plans come together. Nobody talks like that. And I know that we revere people and we remember people, but there's nothing about the death of any human being that ever fills our heart with hope because we know that their earthly influence is, is not what it used to be. Announcements of the deaths of influential people have never brought hope to the world Muhammad died in 632 B.C. in Medina, lying in bed after having caught a fever. Winston Churchill died at age 90 in his London home at Hyde Park after suffering several strokes. There was nothing hopeful in London when Churchill died. 1945, Franklin Roosevelt traveled to one of his favorite getaways, Warm Springs, Georgia, and there on April 12th, while sitting for a, por a portrait, suffered a cerebral hemorrhage. 
and fell over and died. There was not anything in America that was hopeful when Roosevelt died. None of the deaths of world leaders have brought hope to the world. We don't look at John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and say, wow, that was a good thing they died. No, we look at their deaths as tragic. And yet Jesus Christ said throughout the world, people will be irresistibly drawn to him because his earthly life was brought to an end. Thinking about the cross never ceases to stir the heart with hope. You know, it's amazing. If I came in here every single Sunday and mentioned, let's remember the 3,300 people that died on September 11th. Every week, that's part of my sermon. That would get so old. Or if I, every week I said, let's remember the people of Ukraine. How many died this week? How many people died? To just dedicate Sunday message to talk of death would be a very depressing use of 30 minutes. Yet week after week, you beg me, tell me one more time. Tell me one more time. Let me sing one more time. Jesus died for me. It's amazing. The power of his cross. Several years ago, I was traveling by train from New Delhi down to Agra to see the Taj Mahal, and I was riding with a man in the seat next to me. He was a, a devotee of Hare Krishna. I asked him what was he going to go see along his trip, and he said, well, I'm going to go see where Hare Krishna was born. That's one of the things that we need to do in life, one of the high points of life. He said, how about you being a Christian? What's the what, what would thrill you? I said, I would love to go see where Jesus died. He said, how morbid. <laughs> and it is interesting to think about, to go see where somebody died except Jesus. Everybody wants to go to Jerusalem and to see where the hope and light of the world happened at Calvary. Everyone who's tasted the forgiveness of God wants to remember over and over and over again the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We could not have seen this any more simply and beautifully than we did yesterday at the HP Kids Easter Egg Hunt. If you were there, you missed out. 1,200 eggs. But that's not the highlight of the day. The highlight of the day is the the brief devotion that I've seen for years here. But yesterday was special for me because I got to see my wife teach. She is a teacher. She's a great teacher, but it's amazing. The focus in our ministry or our relationship has primarily been on me. She comes here. I don't get to go to school. See her teach, but I saw her teach yesterday. And so she told a story when she was a six-year-old little girl that she was um, at Belvedere Elementary School and when her teacher left the classroom at the end of the day, her mother taught school there so Lisa was always hanging out late. When her teacher left school, Lisa walked up to the chalkboard and took a piece of chalk and put it in her backpack because she wanted to write, on it, write with it at home, love chalk. Well, when she got home, her sister said, where'd you get that? <laughs> 
And so I'm telling mama, Elisa threw it over the fence because there was a big dog that lived next door and she knew that nobody would ever go there to check it. Well, when her mom found out what she did, she said, we got to go back to the school and tell your teacher. And when the teacher said, and when Lisa told the teacher, she said, Lisa, I want you to learn a very important thing that when you do something like that, when you steal or you lie, a black mark comes upon your heart. Whenever we do something that God would not have done, when we say something, no way Jesus would have said that. A black mark of guilt on your heart. So Lisa drew that on the, on the board yesterday for the kids in permanent marker. And then she called members from the studio audience to come up and try to erase it, and they couldn't. We knew they couldn't because we tried it at home. You're not getting that out. Over and over again, you know, two, three kids came, and then Lisa brought out some special little formula on the bottle. The bottle was named Jesus. Inside, it had something in it that I'm not saying. <laughs> she sprayed that on there, and I wish you could have heard those kids when that black mark got erased and they heard that the black marks in our heart can go away. Had a little boy leave there. It's amazing. We, I, I, sometimes you think about just surviving events. Really wasn't really praying for, I wasn't praying for the salvation of a child. I wanted it to be taught well, but I just wasn't praying. But God moved. His parents were praying for him. Moved profoundly on this child's life. And he went home and he asked his parents, cannot believe this, the drawing power of the cross. He asked his parents, not what happens if you have a black mark on your heart. He said, mom and dad, what happens if all of your heart is black? He knew what he had done. I know what I've done. I would love it if I had one. So when we were working on this thing yesterday, when Lisa was working on that, she asked the kids, you know, she said, let's try to erase it with being better than other children, being better than other people. Wouldn't come off. Let's try to erase it by never missing church. Just be here all the time. Wouldn't come off. Let's try to erase it by telling God, I will never do this again. And God said, well, I, I hope not. But it still doesn't take away only when this special formula in this bottle labeled Jesus did it come off. And that little boy there in his house yesterday afternoon told his parents, I want to pray and ask Jesus to take the black marks off my heart. This is why Jesus died on the cross to transfer the marks that are in your heart onto his heart so then he could go and suffer for them instead of you. That's why he died. You say, well, that's elementary. Well, then we'll beef it up and use some verses that Lisa didn't use yesterday because you can only talk to children for 17 seconds. <laughs> and at least you'll give me 45 seconds. This is the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no black marks. God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us. That's the 
transfer of black marks so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's just a transfer. Your black marks to him, his purity to you. It's the best trade in the world. What's he do with your black marks? He goes and suffers for them. Isaiah 53, a paraphrase. He was pierced for our rebellion, the cross. Each of us has chosen our way instead of God's way. And the Lord has laid our sin, all our sin on Christ. It was God who punished Jesus at the cross for all of our black marks that were transferred to Jesus by faith. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we see more than a good man enduring a grueling death with heroic courage. We see the Son of God absorbing the wrath of God. We see divine blood cleansing human wickedness. We see an innocent heart sacrificed for guilty hearts. We see the power of hate losing to the power of love. And we see the power of death losing to the power of resurrection. That's why one of my old preacher friends, very old, Alexander McLaren said, the cross is the eternal magnet. Jesus is saying, when they see, this is why Jesus said all the world will come. When they see my shame taking away their shame, they'll come. When they see my punishment taking away their punishment, they'll come. When they see my obedience atoning for their disobedience, they'll come. They will throw away every excuse and they will discard every idol and they will run with joyful and convinced hearts to me. The cross will draw them. Let me tell you something. Once you've heard the story of Jesus Christ bleeding on Calvary's cross, you can never forget it. The cross is the trumpet of God to wake a deaf world up. And once you hear the trumpet, you will always hear those notes. So when you see the cross, you've got two choices. You can see the cross, hear about it, preaching. And you could say, I kneel before the cross and I transfer the black marks, the guilt of my life to you, Jesus, and receive from you your purity and holiness. I'm yours. Like that boy did yesterday. Done. Eternity settled for him. Or you can say, I don't care. And then you can spend the rest of your life trying to convince yourself you don't care and you'll lose that one every time. Because once you hear the drawing power of the cross, you can never get out of your mind. That Jesus died for you. It's like a black hole. Anything that gets near it in outer space is drawn in. To it. It's a really important to understand why the cross has such drawing power. Jesus told us that a few sentences before he said, verse 32, I'll draw them into myself. He, he said, why? It has such power. Verse 23 and 24, John 12. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. So here, interestingly, in John 12, 23 and 24, he equates being glorified with being killed. Not exactly when you say, I'm seeking glory, therefore I'm seeking death. It was for him. Why do you say that? Well, you got to understand the word, what it means to be glorified. 
Glorified means that something that is not really visible is now becoming visible. That's what it means for something to be glorified. It's like we use telescopes to see things that are far away and look so small through the telescope, they are now in our eyes big. The telescope does not make small things bigger. It just helps you see big things for as big as they are. Jesus said, nothing will help people see the love and wrath of God as my death on the cross. It's amazing. There's nothing like the love of God as seen on the cross. I mean, God did a lot of loving things in the Old Testament. He, he, he rescued Israel from Egypt parted a Red Sea, fed them for 40 years in the wilderness, and when they rebelled against him and got um, in captivity again, 70 years later, God brought them all back to the holy city of Jerusalem. Very loving throughout the Old Testament, God's interactions with his people, but there is nothing more loving than when God for his people sent his one and only son to die on a cross. That's where you see the love of God. In between the services, I was walking around like a proud rooster with my two-year-old grandson in my arm, wanting everybody to see me hold him. And if you said, I got to give him up for you to go to heaven, you're just going to have to go to hell. (laughs) You never see the love of God as you do when he gave his one and only son. But the cross also helps us see the wrath of God as we never see anywhere else in scripture. Because there's lots of examples in the Old Testament of the wrath of God. You see, the wrath of God when Israel was escaping and God drowned the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. You see, the wrath of God when God, in fact, flooded the whole world in the days of Noah so that all except eight people were destroyed. We see the wrath of God one single night when the Jews were battling the Assyrians and God killed 185,000 soldiers with one angel. This is what makes Jesus' claim so remarkable. Through my death, I will have more influence than if I had not died. The worst death in history brought about the greatest impact in history, is what he's saying in John 12, 32. My preaching professor used to say it like this. When other young men are cut down in death, we say, what a pity But when Christ is cut down in death, we say, what a necessity. Speaking of young men who died early on, it's interesting when you compare the lives of great leaders who died young. Specifically, Jesus Christ and Alexander the Great. Many similarities in in their life. Both men started their mission at a young age. Alexander started his mission at age 20 of conquering the world. Jesus Christ told Israel that I'm the king of kings at age 30. Both men were brilliant beyond any explanation. 
and both men had very little time to accomplish their task. Alexander the Great would have to do all of his conquering in 13 years before he died. Jesus Christ would have to do all of his kingdom preaching and miracle working in three years before he died. And interestingly enough, both Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ both died at age 33. And that's where the similarities end. In their deaths, they were so different. 323 BC, Alexander contracted a fatal illness over which he had no control and he died. AD 30, Jesus Christ willingly laid down his life and let Roman soldiers nail him to a cross. But what makes their death so different is the power that came after their death. As soon as Alexander died, he lost his kingdom. It was divided in, into three generals that took over and the kingdom, the great kingdom of Alexander the Great was no more. When Jesus died, his kingdom was divided among 11 disciples who produced 11 more, who produced 11,000, who produced 11 million and 80,000 people a day around the world confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Just amazing. Jesus did not lose his kingdom. He expanded his kingdom because he died. And Jesus Christ told his disciples it would be that way. John 10, the reason my father loves me is I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord and I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's the big difference between Alexander the Great and Jesus Christ. Alexander the Great did not choose his death. Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life and he picked up his life that we might dwell with him forever. Jesus Christ went to the cross because he knew that if he died, he would have more influence than if he had never died. It's amazing. And that's what he meant again in this verse one more time. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. I love that word draw in there. Oh, that's a beautiful word. Because it contrasts with all of the other world religions and the cults and everything that people can get involved with. Jesus Christ said, lack of a better word, the religion that I am starting or the movement I'm starting, the kingdom I'm building, I will draw lovingly people to me. All the other world religions and the cults, they drive people. They use fear to drive people. They use guilt to drag people. Jesus Christ just presents himself on the cross and says, come and let me love you and let me forgive you. He truly is, and the cross truly is the eternal magnet. I was reading just this weekend, very interesting fact. This is the most powerful magnet in the world. It was the product of 35 countries it's currently in France. It's known as the central solenoid. It's designed to help fuel a state-of-the-art nuclear fusion reactor. It's 59 feet tall and 14 feet in diameter. It produces a magnetic field that's 280,000 times stronger than the Earth magnetic field. It's strong enough to lift an aircraft carrier, 100,000 tons. But for 2,000 years... There has been a much stronger magnet at work in this world than this 
central solenoid. It is the cross of Jesus Christ drawing people to himself that you would have looked at their life at one point, maybe in their teens, maybe in their early 20s, and you would have said, they will never come and they will never get saved. They will never seek forgiveness and they will never enter a church. Let me tell you something. If we had time today, there would be people in this that would stand up right now and say, I am that person. I'm the person that you would have bet everything on. He's not savable. He's not forgivable. And the drawing power of the cross worked in their life and they got saved, forgiven, and they're headed for heaven like that little boy at the Easter egg hunt yesterday. Every day people leave false gods and sinful lifestyles and God turns rebels into sons and enemies into daughters because of the magnet of the cross. You know, Christ won more love by what he did at the cross than any other thing that he did. I mean, when you see Jesus Christ heal a leper, it's beautiful, but you say, well, he did it for him in the Gospels. When you see Jesus Christ raise a little girl from the dead, you say, how beautiful, but he did it for her. But when you see Jesus Christ on the cross, everyone says, he did that for me. Christ gained more respect at the cross than anything else he ever did. We admire Jesus for resisting Satan after his baptism, tempted in the wilderness with 40 days of not eating, and he resisted all of Satan's tactics. We admire Jesus Christ when he was on his knees before the night before he died, and Satan came and attacked him so much emotionally and psychologically. The Bible says the, the, the sweat that came out of his skin and in his face was mixed with blood. It was hemorrhaging. But nowhere do we, nowhere do we admire Jesus Christ than when we see him nailed to that cross at nine in the morning on Friday and he stayed there until three in the afternoon, six hours after a severe beating of 40 lashes. And he stayed there until he could say to Telestai, it is finished. Everything that is needed for you to get to heaven is done. Christ produced more hope at the cross than he did anywhere else. I'm telling you, every time you see an atrocity in the world, like what's going on overseas with, in Ukraine, it's unbearable. And if there was not a cross that would promise life after death for those who are slaughtered in war, if there's not a cross, I, I wouldn't come to church today. I couldn't come to church today. I've got nothing to tell you. Five days ago, I stood on this stage and I was allowed to speak at one of the most beautiful women, one of the most beautiful lives, our church violinist, Lori McCracken, one of the most beautiful sisters of the Lord, one of those devoted servants of Christ I have ever met. Cut down by cancer at 55 years of life. And if I didn't know that Jesus Christ had been cut down by the cross when he was 33 years old, I would have no hope for that 55-year-old sister. If I didn't know that Jesus Christ had come and experienced massive injustice and had conquered Lori's sin and my sin and the world's sin, conquered the most fierce of all enemies, death itself, I wouldn't have any hope. I would have no hope. 
But the cross gives us hope for even the worst of all scenarios. And that's why the cross, even though it's the most hideous symbol ever in the history of the world, is also the most beautiful symbol in the history of the world. My wife and I were tooling around Saturday a week ago in a beach community. Somebody let us have a few days at their, their beach house. And so for those few days, we were, we were rich. And we just drove everywhere on the golf cart. Oh, it was magnificent. Saturday, before we came home, we drove past the clubhouse and somebody was getting married. They brought a cross out put beautiful flowers on it. I hope they left it up for Easter. I don't know if they did, but they worked so hard on that. I hope they did. And I thought to myself, you know, whether you put flowers on a cross or you simply understand its significance, the cross is extraordinarily beautiful. How do, when do you say that about any other place of death? The cross reminds us of God's willingness to forgive any sin you'll ever bring to him. That's beautiful. The cross reminds us of God's desire to rebuild any life that comes to him. The cross reminds us of a love that refuses to quit until it's done. Saving. The cross reminds us that evil has no chance of defeating the plans of God. The cross reminds us that even when God leads us through unbearable pain on the other side is immeasurable beauty. It's the cross. So now you have to ask yourself, do I want that? Do I want all of those benefits? Do I want to come to this cross? That's why God brought you here today, to give you a chance to say, I want to start a relationship with Jesus Christ like the young man did yesterday at the Easter egg hunt. I want a relationship with God through Jesus Christ who died for my sins. If you've never told Jesus, if you don't live in this, this Jesus, thank you for dying for me. You're not a saved person. You have no relationship with God. Because that's the, one, the number one thing you want to do when somebody saves your life is to tell them what? Thank you. With every part of you. Thank you. A few years ago, well, many years ago now, at seminary, when I say something like the other day, that means it could have happened between now and 1960. So a few years ago for me at seminary, it was 1984. We were in Christian ethics class and, the, I, and the, the professor said, I think that was the class, the professor said, okay, I want you to get to know each other before you know, the beginning, day one of class. But here are the rules. I want you to tell the person next to you the most fascinating part of your life up till now. People buzzing, talking all around the room, and I didn't find this out till later. But one guy said to the guy across the aisle from him, the most fascinating thing that's ever happened to me is when I was a college student, hiking in the mountains, too close to a waterfall's edge, fell off. Long fall into a pool of water, and I lay there and would have died were it not 
someone came and found me and saved my life. So now it was time for the other person to tell his story. He said, the most fascinating thing that's ever happened to me is that one day I was hiking in the mountains and I came across a pool of water where a young man had just fallen from the top of a waterfall. And by God's grace, I saved his life. And that was the first day they knew of each other and they met. That was the first time that that young man could tell that guy, thank you for saving my life. If you're looking for mission in life, what's your mission in life? I need purpose. This is it. To spend the rest of your life not just thanking God for the 10,000 things that are working right in your body right now that you don't even know of, Jesus, thank you for hanging on that cross and saving my life. It's life. That's purpose. Whether you say it, sing it, read it, do all things for the glory of God. And today, we're going to give you an opportunity right now to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time in your life, you said, I want you to take that out of my heart and take it to the cross. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.